Thanks, Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's April 17th, 2020, and I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. Today on The Local, your quick six headlines, Alex Zielinski from the Portland Mercury and our interview with Adrian Brown, candidate for Multnomah County Circuit Judge. I'm not becoming a judge because I want to be a politician. I, I, I'm becoming a judge because I, I want to serve my community as a leader. And first up, it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith. It's Friday, April 17th. Conservative protesters are planning a reopen Oregon rally at the state capitol. Part of a coordinated conservative pushback to public health precautions, some folks are wanting to protest Governor Brown's response to the coronavirus. The May 2nd event is meant to pressure the release of executive orders put in place to prevent the spread of COVID-19. No word if the coronavirus itself hatched the plan for the protests. He's sneaky. According to a Facebook event for the rally, protesters will, and I'm quoting, demand that Kate Brown's state of emergency declaration be removed immediately and that our freedoms be restored now. Now! No word if the coronavirus itself set up the Facebook event page or wrote that catchy slogan. On Wednesday, a coalition of Trump-supporting Michiganders protested Governor Whitmer to lift stay-at-home restrictions in that state. Littler protests were held in Kentucky and Ohio. And other right-wing groups in other states planned to follow, according to the New York Times. After claiming he had all the power this week, Trump said on Thursday he would leave it up to the states. And now his Confederates are pressuring governors state by state. In other news, the United States leads the whole world in reported cases of the novel coronavirus. On your daily dose of data, as of Thursday, Oregon's number of confirmed coronavirus cases that we know of is at 1,736. There have been 64 known coronavirus-related deaths in our state. Oregon's testing capacity is flatlined at around 1,250 tests per day, and the number of confirmed cases per day is leveled off at around 60. Oregon's total layoff count is just under 300,000 workers in the past four weeks, or one in every seven Oregon workers. While it doesn't really qualify as good news, last week's numbers, 54,000 new claims, while still gigantic, does represent a 30% decline in claims from prior weeks. It's the lowest layoff count since the outbreak began. Don't know if it's a silver lining yet, but maybe it's a bronze lining. In Washington State, the health department is reporting 10,783 diagnosed cases and 567 related deaths. Love to all those families. Thou shalt pass or incomplete. For the rest of the school year, high school students will no longer be on the letter grading system. The Oregon Department of Education, which maintains the requirements to earn a high school diploma, has released guidance for high schoolers requiring districts to move from letter grades to pass or incomplete results for the rest of the academic year. The guidance for high school students comes a week after the state shared its plan for seniors. Students who are on track to graduate when schools closed in March will get their diplomas. Seniors who are not passing one or more classes will be contacted by their teachers to create a possible pathway to graduation. Seniors will have until August 31st to pass those courses and graduate with their class. Portland Public Schools plans $562 million in new construction spending, but we don't know exactly where. PPS has added $562 million to its capital construction budget for the next three months. It's been nine days since the school board unanimously approved the half a billion dollars in spending, but the district has yet to offer specifics on where that money is going to go. We do know where the money will come from. The vast bulk, about $550 million, is expected from the last round of bond sales voters approved in 2017. The bond measure district voters approved in 2017 authorized borrowing $790 million to renovate Benson and Madison and replace Kellogg Middle School and Lincoln High School. Those plans immediately hit some financial snags. A 
Officials in the district's Office of School Modernization initially lowballed cost estimates by about $100 million. Cost overruns have more than doubled since then. Auditors in 2018 found the total cost of the four projects is now well above a billion bucks. Earlier this year, the school board approved placing a $1.4 billion bond measure on the November ballot. Of that, $236 million will be used to cover cost overruns from the 2017 measure. If voters approve that measure, approximately $1.2 billion will fund renovations of Cleveland, Jefferson, and Wilson high schools. And I don't know if you've toured any of these high schools, but they are beautiful. It's such an amazing achievement. And to get some more money for the projects, the district also sold a parking lot of the former Washington High School site at Southeast 12th and Stark Street for another about $10.5 million. That's the big lot right by where Revolution Hall is now. Shout out to friend Jim Brumberg and much loved the venue workers who need gigs. By the way, do you know why Washington High School closed? A hundred years ago, it was called Eastside High School. Then it became Washington High School. Eventually, it merged with Monroe High School. And then in the early 1980s, Portland Public Schools had sharply declining enrollment. And PPS was going to close Cleveland. But one of the Cleveland parcels, the site of the athletic field, was originally the site of the Clinton Kelly Mansion. Clinton Kelly was an early Portland settler and minister, and he specified the property was to be used solely for a public school. If the property was sold or used in any other way, the property would revert to the heirs of Clinton Kelly. So PPS decided to close Washington High School, Washington Monroe High School by then, and keep Cleveland open. Eugene, Oregon is providing free child care for essential workers. The city of Eugene is joined with Lane County, local school districts, and the YMCA to provide a free child care program for essential workers. As of Wednesday, the program has taken in 168 children with the capacity to take in about 100 more. They're doing things to keep it safe. They're putting blue painter's tape on the cafeteria tables and floors to show kids where the boundaries are. Pool noodles are used to show how far apart they should stand. And decks of playing cards have been laminated so they can be regularly sanitized. Meanwhile, Oregon child care workers protested in Salem yesterday, arguing that the state's new allowance of pop-up child care was costing them revenue. From the Department of Some Good Things and a New Normal, farmers markets are coming back with social distancing in place. Corvallis, Albany, and Portland safety measures are in place, and the markets are open. Don't get too close to cucumbers. Actually, you can touch the cucumbers, but if someone is at the cucumbers, stay a pool noodle away and go over the strawberries. And if someone is there, go over to the hemp candles, or maybe the garlic snapes, or the butter beans, the zucchini blossoms. So many amazing things at a farmer's market. Need a laugh from a professional? The Portland Mercury is going to be streaming their I Anonymous show on April 24th. And you can check out former X-Ray Morning co-host Caitlin Warehouser and more. Inhaling is a little different in Portland. The DEQ says the traffic air pollution is down 40%. So fresh and so clean. And don't say never. Oregon will soon waive the one-week waiting period for unemployment benefits. And they will apply it retroactively. And they said it couldn't be done. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith. I'm Jefferson Smith, and you, you're listening to The Local. Now, Alex Zelensky of the Portland Mercury joins to give more details about the city of Portland budget. Layoffs are certain, but how many? Alex has more. What's up, Alex? What do you want to talk about? Let's talk about what's going on with the city of Portland and their budget. I've been talking to folks about... Um, I mean, before this all happened, this being the coronavirus kind of hitting Oregon, the city was on track for a really excellent budget cycle and had been saving a lot of money. Things were looking up. 
and everything was kind of planned to be voted on for the next budget, the next year, which usually is voted on around June, the next budget. And now everything has been kind of derailed and pushed back to square one. In doing so, there's been a ton of, I mean, uh, the, the fallout of coronavirus has, has hit, obviously, we know Metro really hard. They had to do a ton of layoffs because they're so public kind of facing, but it's now hit hit the city of Portland. They have been uh, forced to do, to, to, to stop all kind of cost of living raises for their employees that are not represented by a union and they're entering all these negotiations with different unions um, that represent city employees to, to try to see if they'll be lenient to, to not doing any kind of cost of living increases or um, wage increases in the following year. Uh, the mayor is planning on not receiving a salary for the next uh, calendar year which to, to save money. And, uh, and at the same time, they're still, we're still expecting a, a budget that's going to be cutting a lot of city programs and, and expected areas that, that folks were hoping to be funded that no longer will be because of um, kind of a varied amount of budget items that have been slashed because of the coronavirus, like, um, or impacted, you know, if from just like meters, people parking and paying uh, parking meters to our tourism tax to, uh, you know, no one staying in hotels or, or Airbnbs, and we get a lot of money kind of from those. Um, it seems to be kind of a, a cobbled together, um, I guess, a quilt, if, if you will, of different um, different little pieces of the city's budget that's been impacted by this uh, to the point where I think, let me make sure I get this number right, they're estimating a, um, a shortfall of $100 million in the general fund for the year beginning in, in July, the fiscal year. So you mentioned uh, in terms we, of the cut, in terms of the loss of revenue, in terms of the uh-huh. loss of revenue, you're saying that some activities I can totally understand the reduction in parking meter revenue. Any other examples of why revenue is going to be down? Well, the city relies heavily on this. I mentioned it a little bit, but the, the tourism tax, which um, tourists and folks who come in and uh, stay in Portland hotels uh, and even Airbnbs now, they're paying a portion, they're paying a tax that's going uh, right back into the city's budget, and the city relies a lot on that. Same with I mean, a ton of the businesses that the city works with um, are also impacted, and so they're scaling back their own resources, you know, different contracting jobs and different work in that in those areas. But the two big things, or the biggest thing that's really been pointed to is the, is the tourism. They announced already, I think it was, what, $19 million worth of, of cuts for non-represented employees, because those are the folks who yeah. don't have a union contract. But most mm-hmm. of the employees, most of the workers for the city are unionized. Yeah, that's the bulk of the budget. Right. What can you tell us about the negotiations there? Are they going to have to deal with furloughs and or some degree of position loss? I think that is what's being discussed right now. And I think there are many closed door meetings happening about kind of how far union represent you know, their union leaders will allow the city to push and it's not gonna be an easy discussion. I don't know really where those conversations are as of yet. I think, you know, they're just opening up all of those contracts right now and kind of 
jumping into the middle of them to see if there's space for, yeah, uh, um, I don't know if it's a furlough or if it's just, you know, cuts to any kind of raises or freeze on any kind of, you know, merit pay. But those are all on the table, I'd assume. This, of course, back in 2008, back in 2001, the previous big economic challenges, this looks to be bigger than both of those. This was just an enormous topic because people would be saying, well, you should use all the tools. There'd be critics mm-hmm. that you got to use all the tools to balance the budget. That includes cuts. That includes tax increases. That includes borrowing. Uh, that includes stopping doing some stuff. And that also might include impacts to the labor force. That's happening to you know lots of people. Heck, how many people do we know who lost their jobs or are on furlough right now? And mm-hmm. at the same time, uh, union organizers, this is the moment where they can shine. This is the time they can say, look, we, we represent workers for a reason. And it's so during tough times, these workers can still get what they've negotiated. So this seems like a really critical time for that tension. Right. Yeah. And they hold a lot of power right now because the city and, and all these different governments and major organizations, especially like, you know, the grocery industry, nurses, medical and healthcare industries, they all need these workers right now. And having leverage over, you know, getting sick time, getting extended pay for working long hours. There's, you know, a conversation around that at the same time when, like you said, the city's asking for these uh, union uh, members to, to actually roll back the amount of benefits they're getting. So it's certainly going to be a tough conversation. I think, um, I think, I mean, it puts everyone on city council in a in a tricky position. Right. These are the very organizations that helped elect, uh, the very organizations yeah. helped elect a good chunk of maybe most of the city council and certainly anybody who wants to do a political job after that. Let's ask about yeah. borrowing. Another thing that you can do during a an economic crisis is borrow from future budgets. You can also ask for federal money. If we've got $100 million, $200 million, maybe it's going to grow in a shortfall later. In addition to what cuts are being considered, what kind of other borrowing uh, moves? Well, I know the city is, uh, like any city I think right now, is uh, looking for funds from the the special um, program created by the federal government, the CARES Act, Um, and they've been put kind of an unusual situation where the city is um, in some ways competing against the the county uh, for funding right now. And because the county... um, in any other situation, the county would also be open to the same amount of funds through this CARE Act, but because Multnomah County um, uh, has a huge population, um, once you reach a certain, I think it's 500,000 people in a county, uh, then the funds will go towards that city and that county as opposed to the county. So, I mean, walking this aside, um, this city's uh, looking for for dollars from the federal government, looking to not just borrow money, but to to get you know federal grants, um, and finding that they might have to share them or at least play a little tug of war with them um, with with the county. I don't know about longer term. I don't know about borrowing from um, from future uh, budgets. That's a great question. I'm not sure if that's. Um, I, I'm sure that's on the table and that's being considered right now. But I. I know I'm certain that, if anything, it's just going to be a much, much uh, tighter and limited budget than the city had planned on, um, you know, just a month ago. Alex Zielinski, thank you so much. Anything else you need to add about that? 
Nope. Well, I've, I, 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 think, I, I have I think to tell you. To, go ahead. Go uh, ahead. Oh, I think another thing to consider is that, you know, we've heard from Metro, we've heard from the city of Portland. I think uh, furloughs and cuts to Multnomah County are probably going to be the next thing that we hear about. I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. At some point, it might even be fun to do a Zoom call where we can invite some people to participate in the conversation, maybe go a little bit longer. But it is it, yeah. it, it is such a it is such a value to our our membership, to our listener group uh, that you do this. And we just can't thank you enough. Oh, that means a lot. Next up is our interview with Adrian Brown, candidate for Multnomah County Circuit Court Judge. What is justice? Listen in for Adrian's thoughts. Judges play a key role in our justice system, and they make decisions that impact the lives of everyday individuals who appear before them in court. Adrian Brown was an Air Force officer in the Judge Advocate General's Corps before settling down to work on public policy here in Portland. Now Adrienne is running for Multnomah County Circuit Court Judge, and she joins us now to tell us more. Good morning, Adrienne. Good morning, Emily. Well, first off, tell us a bit about yourself and why you're running for Circuit Court Judge. Thank you, and, and thank you so much for making this opportunity happen to help educate the voters. I know uh, having the ability to elect judges, having a choice of election of judges is uh, not common. And so it's so important to keep our voters educated in these races that don't typically appear on the ballot. So I am a mom. I'm a veteran, as you mentioned, and I'm an advocate. Those are the three ways I like to describe myself because they really define the breadth of my experience and the depth of my experience as well. I grew up uh, as a young child uh, with a single mom, and sh I saw her fight for child support for my sister and I. And that left a mark on me because at the end of the struggle, it was a judge that made a difference in our lives, mm -hmm. a judge that did the right thing for the right reasons as a public servant. And after years of having no child support, he finally provided justice for our family and it made a big difference in my life and my mom's ability to persist in that um, also gave me the ability to see the value of compassion uh, it was with my mom's compassion uh, for my sister and I as well as just for what's right that has motivated me to want to be a public servant to be involved in my local community and I have chosen to be a public servant for the entirety of my career. It's a choice I feel has been an honor uh, to serve, both as an Air Force uh, judge advocate, as well as in the Justice Department as a civil rights coordinator. And in 2017, I decided I needed to do more to be in my local community, to help my local community, and I started pursuing avenues to do that. And I saw in some of our judges leadership that was exactly what I was looking for. Uh, leadership using your ability to impact our local community in a way that benefits creating more access to justice, that helps underrepresented communities be heard, and that helps families. And so it all came together and this opportunity was presented and I jumped on it because uh, I have a passion to serve. Mm. 
And there are four candidates running for this role. What's at stake in the county circuit court election? Yeah, so um, my answer uh, would have been different uh, a couple months ago. Mm. <laughs> with, uh, with COVID-19, I believe that there's even more at stake. Mm-hmm. And what's at stake is leadership. Uh, making sure that we have judges on the bench that have experience and leadership through crisis, have experience and leadership through systemic reform, and I am uniquely situated to bring that leadership. So uh, I have not only served as the civil rights coordinator for the last 10 years in the department, but I have also worked on systemic reform on issues that are being thrusted before our court. And those issues are going to be even more magnified with COVID-19. So those issues involve things like making sure that there is access for communities. Uh, COVID-19 has highlighted um, that there are all, there's always opportunities to learn, but, but COVID-19 has magnified the reason why we need to pay attention at where our gaps are in our access to justice. And what I mean by that is how people can make sure they have access to the judicial system, to the courts. And in a day where uh, COVID-19 has shown us how much, how, how important it is for technology to meet the demands of communities, uh, the court is no different. Uh, we need to make sure that we have um, leaders in, at the court. Um, and that's what judges are. Judges are as a third branch of government and as elected officials, we're, we're leaders and we need to work with our stakeholders. And so I have been able to um, have the honor of, of doing that in my work already. So I have worked on both systemic reform issues involving gaps in our community mental health services, gaps in um, best practices for policing, fair housing, uh, treatment of veterans, families with children. And so I bring that leadership and that experience and I look forward to an opportunity to be able to help move the work of the court forward. Mm. And you mentioned in your career you have experienced judges on the bench that have inspired you that have sort of in, and also inspired you to run for judge. What makes a good district court judge? How do you know when you're standing in front of someone that's really at the top of their game? Yes, um, that's a that's a great question because uh, there there's it, and we could, you know, talk about it all day. Mm. Uh, there's certainly a um, uh, sort of a, a canned answer about, you know, a judge needs to have the judicial temperament. A judge needs to have um, the ability to, to to have compassion for those who are before her. And one of the things that I have done in my own time is just watched judges, gone and watched judges, uh, m- mostly judges that have been involved in treatment courts, so the judges in our local community that have the treatment court dockets, and by the treatment courts, I mean the mental health court, our drug courts, these are courts where there is a unique way that judges are looking at cases to help people connect with services so that they don't continue to come back. And I think that the judges that run our treatment courts, such as Judge Waller, uh, Judge Albright in the past, Judge Block, Judge Bergstrom has also worked on some veterans treatment uh, court issues. There has been um, this need to really 
be involved at the granular local level. And that takes a whole nother set of not just the temperament and the compassion, but the ability to really get into what is needed to help people. Um, judges, you know, they can't be advocates for one side or the other, but they can be advocates for making change in people's lives when they have the opportunity. And I think that is so important in, in, in today's world where there are so many intersections between addiction and mental health and uh, the, the economic struggles and the racial injustices that a good judge is someone who's going to know what questions to ask and how to hold people accountable um, at the same time. It's, it's, it's being able to balance that for each individual that appears before you. And that's where experience comes in. You have to have experience to know what questions to ask, to know what to be looking for. And this is where I feel that my experience will best serve the electorate. And that is, I have served both as a prosecutor as well as a defense attorney. And so I have seen the complexity and the humanity on both sides of those things and know what questions to ask and what to be looking for. And also on the civil side, I have both represented individuals who have been wronged, as well as organizations and agencies who need to defend, you know, themselves and, and what they and what's happened. Um, so that breadth and depth of experience is going to make me a great district court judge. Now, you've mentioned the diversity of community members that would be standing in front of you and the many intersectional identities that each of us bring to to the world. How do you recognize in yourself bias that mm-hmm. might mm-hmm. might come into a situation when you when you are bringing your life experience to to each of these cases? How do you recognize bias and how do you manage it, navigate it to be uh, creating a fair process? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question. And it is something that this is one of the key points I, I believe is so important for, for all of us, whether or not you're a judge or not, is is being open to learning. And one of those things is learning about yourself and seeking out those opportunities to better understand why you think the way you think and maybe even looking at yourself and not realizing that you're thinking things. So one of the ways uh, I I have been um, very honored that I've been able to serve as a volunteer mediator in Multnomah County as a a small claims mediator. And um, one of the aspects of that is, is, is continually learning how to be a better listener, how to be a better um, uh, uh, questioner with using open-ended questions. And uh, one of the, um, experiences I had recently was sitting through a training on, and I don't even want to call it a training. It's really, it's really an experience to learn about implicit bias and how it comes to be and how you can uh, not only learn about it, but be aware of it in yourself. And so I think one of the things that is so vitally important for all of us in our community is to continue to want to learn to continue to want to learn about ourselves, about our community members, about our history, and about how we can do things better. And so I look forward to 
that opportunity. Uh, one of the um, one of the programs that the Multnomah County um, Court has had in the in the past have been lunch and learns, which have been available to judges and staff members and volunteers like myself as a mediator uh, to come and learn and, and about different aspects of our community, different aspects of the people that come before the court. And I look forward to continuing to not only seize those opportunities to learn, uh, but also look for ways that I can also help people learn. What is it like to run for a judge position? You mentioned at the beginning of our interview, it's rare for us to have the opportunity to vote for a judge. How do you run a campaign to get a judge seat? Yes, it's a good question, because judges aren't politicians, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not uh, career pol even though we're elected, we're not career politicians as someone who's running for Congress or someone who's running for a Senate seat. Um, we are professionals. Right? Judges are professionals. Judges have, have worked in the law as an attorney, and now we're in an election. We're being thrusted into this political landscape. And so, no doubt, that's been challenging. You know, I, I'm not becoming a judge because I want to be a politician. Mm. I, I, I'm becoming a judge because I, I want to serve my community as a leader. And um, so one of the biggest challenges has been um, being able to reach to voters that didn't even know that this was an election. You know, they didn't even know judges were elected. And so it's that education piece about why this is important, why this matters, uh, you know, and it's not, there, there are people across the board, whether you're a professional, doctors, attorneys, um, other professions, all the way from, you know, neighbors who didn't know that this was a thing, don't even know what judges really do. Um, so it's the education piece that has been both challenging and as well as really rewarding uh, because I, I really love that aspect of being in the community and helping people understand um, what they can do to be involved and make a difference. And so um, I see that challenge as an opportunity, and certainly COVID-19 has um, made that even more of a challenge and, and also presented new opportunities for educating people and how they can be helpful even at home. Uh, people can be involved in politics, in elections, in their PJs. Mm-hmm. Um, there are all sorts of ways that people can be supportive um, through their work as a, as a voter and as an informed, as an informed voter. Where can people find out more about you, Adrian? Yes. So um, one of the best ways to learn about me is on my website, um, which is uh, adrianforjudge.com. Very simple. Adrian is A-D-R-I-A-N for judge.com. And then I also, once you get to my website, you'll see I have links to other social media. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. And then also um, I, I highly want to encourage people to, you know, take, take a moment to be an informed electorate, um, be, be an informed voter, and um, consider, uh, you know, making a pledge pledge to vote for me. Um, there is a, um, there is a, a link uh, that people can um, get to on my website to pledge to vote for me, and I welcome uh, questions as well. So if people have questions for me, I welcome that. My uh, email is info at adrianforjudge.com. And um, I, I, I uh, think transparency and, and leadership is, is very important. And, uh, and I welcome input and questions, um, people to share their concerns, their, their interests with me.
Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Adrian. Thank you so much, Emily. I really, really have enjoyed our, our conversation. And, and again, thank you for helping to educate our voters about this election. Thank you so much. That was Adrian Brown. She'll be running for Multnomah County Circuit Court Judge. You're going to see her on the ballot, and those ballots are going to start hitting mailboxes in the next few weeks for just 34 days from the Oregon primary. Again, that's Adrian Brown, website adrianforjudge.com. Today, back in the day, Paul McCartney released his first solo album back in 1970. The album name, McCartney. What the album title lacked in creativity, it made up for in being named after Paul McCartney. Also, Benjamin Franklin died on this day back in April 17, 1790. And tomorrow, Saturday back in the day, listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere on the 18th of April in 75. Hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. You say you want a revolution? William Dawes didn't even get a poem. He said to his friend, if the British march by land or sea from the town tonight, hang a lantern aloft in the belfry arch of the North Church Tower as a signal light. One if by land, two if by sea, and I on the opposite shore will be, ready to ride and spread the alarm through every Middlesex village and farm for the country folk to be up and to arm. And so through the night went his cry of alarm to every Middlesex village and farm, a cry of defiance and not of fear, a voice in the darkness and a knock at the door, and a word that shall echo forevermore, for born on the night wind of the past, through all our history to the last, in the hour of darkness and peril and need, the people will waken and listen to hear the hurrying hoofbeats of that steed and the midnight message of Paul Revere. Stay a pool noodle away! Thanks to Alex and Adrian for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. This is episode 20, Holy Mackerel. Thank you. We are so grateful to you listening. If you want us to get better, email us at thelocal at xray.fm. You can also give us story ideas. And right now, if you go to Willamette Week's Best of Portland, you can nominate The Local as Best Podcast. We'd sure appreciate it. Give a little bit of fuel to the fire. Next week, X-Ray's Fun Drive begins. It's a really important one, and I want to give a special shout-out and thank you to Nina, who's been working overtime to get ready for the Fun Drive in the most challenging context we've ever faced. Also, huge thanks to our production team, editor Will Romy, writers Casey Colton, Emily Gilliland, Julia Oppenheimer, Joy Palchik, Miranda Selinger, and Jamie Zangwill, co-executive producer Emily Gilliland, and I'm Jefferson Smith. Thanks to original news pieces from the Lund Report, Portland Business Journal, the Willamette Week, Pamplin Media, OPB, the Portland Observer, the Oregonian, the Statesman Journal, Street Roots, and news partners Bridgeliner and the Portland Mercury. Talk to you Monday. In the meantime, stay home, stay connected, and thank you, democracy.